Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Monday, December 2nd. I am Aranza Loizaga, and these are today's headlines. As the impeachment inquiry into President Trump moves to a new phase, the White House announcing it will not participate in a key committee hearing later this week. Witnesses describe chaos on the streets of the French Quarter after a shooting leaves 10 injured in New Orleans. And winter weather turning deadly as major storms sweep across the country. This and much more today on U News, recorded live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with an urgent investigation underway in Louisiana. This after a mass shooting erupted in New Orleans on Sunday, injuring 10 people. Carolina Saraza has the latest. New Orleans police on the hunt for the people behind the mass shooting just outside the famed French Quarter over the holiday weekend. We got uh, a total at uh, Charters and uh, Canal. We're going to need EMS here as well. 10 people shot two transported to the hospital in critical condition, one shot in the chest, the other in the torso. Tens of thousands of college football fans in town for the Bayou Classic between Grambling and Southern Universities. Additional officers on duty for the big game, just feet away when they heard the first shots on Canal Street. They were right there when it occurred. They heard the shots again. They were under the impression that they may have been fired upon because the shots were so close. Officers swarming the scene, but amid the chaos with so many people out for hours after the game. Authorities say it was initially tough to tell where the shots were coming from. One person of interest taken into custody near the scene, interrogated by police. The mayor of New Orleans calling the shootings an ugly disruption of an otherwise beautiful holiday weekend, adding that the tragedy will not define us. Three years ago, an almost identical scene on Bourbon Street after the Bayou Classic, 10 people shot the Sunday after Thanksgiving in 2016. Carolina Saraza, U News. Now to Capitol Hill, where a new phase in the impeachment process begins. The House Intelligence Committee passing the case on to the House Judiciary Committee, which now will start a series of more public hearings, giving the president the opportunity to actually participate in the process. But the White House this morning turning down that offer. Lorraine Casares brings us the very latest. More public hearings will resume in just two days, this time carried out by the House Judiciary Committee. Chair Jerry Nadler giving the White House a 5 p.m. Friday deadline to respond on whether it will participate in the impeachment inquiry. So far, they've declined the offer, saying in a letter, your letter provided no information whatsoever as to the dates these hearings will occur, what witnesses will be called, what the schedule will be, what the procedures will be, or what rights, if any, the committee intends to afford the president. In other words, you have given no information regarding your plans, set arbitrary deadlines and then demanded a response, all to create the false appearance of providing the president some rudimentary process. Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham had first responded to the invitation. Sari Nadler's offer is being reviewed, but the president has done nothing wrong and the Democrats know it. When you complain and complain and complain and then you have an opportunity to to put your story to the American public and you don't want to do it and you don't want to be subject to cross-examination yourself, 
it shows you don't have a very good story and a very good defense. For some, taking advantage of the offer would benefit the president. I think it would be to the president's advantage to have his attorneys there. That is his right. But others say it's risky. By allowing his own attorneys to participate in the proceedings, he gives the proceedings legitimacy. During the Thanksgiving break, the House Intelligence Committee drafted an impeachment report with its findings after weeks of closed door and public hearings. On Tuesday, the committee will vote to approve it and pass it along to the House Judiciary Committee. Nadler will use it as a guide to help write articles of impeachment on the Ukraine-related charges, but also considering additional articles, including obstruction of justice based on the Mueller probe. I think there's a mountain range of evidence that has uh, come to light through public testimony, through the private depositions that I've had an opportunity to listen to. But for Republicans, the evidence falls short. This will be the first partisan impeachment in the history of our country. I, I think uh, Chairman Schiff and Speaker Pelosi knew from the very beginning what, how they would vote and what they were going to try to prove. This, as the president of Ukraine insists, there was no quid pro quo, speaking on the matter again in a series of interviews. Look, I never talked to the president from the position of a quid pro quo. That's not my thing. I don't want us to look like beggars. But you have to understand we're at war. If you're our strategic partner, then you can't go blocking anything from us. I think that's just about fairness. It's not about quid pro quo. It just goes without saying. The president in a tweet reacted to that interview. He's saying that again Zelensky has said he did nothing wrong and if Democrats were sane and would listen, the case would be over. In a tweet, he also criticized how he only gets to have one lawyer present during, uh, present during the impeachment hearings while Democrats get three. It's not clear yet if the president will in fact take the offer to participate in the process. Back to you, Aranza. Lorraine, thank you so much for this information. Now, President Trump announced today new tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from Brazil and Argentina. Let's go to Janet Rodriguez, who has the latest on why this is coming about. And that tweet came as a big surprise. That announcement was not really in the forefront of the political conversation here in Washington or at the White House. So we're trying to understand why the president is reinstating those tariffs to Argentina and Brazil. Both countries had been exempt for a while from the tariffs as the governments in those uh, countries were allies of the president, had come to the White House and were friendly to President Trump. Now, this is how the president explained his action leaving the White House this morning. Well, Brazil has uh, really discounted, if you take a look at what's happened with their currency, they've devalued their currency very substantially by 10%, Argentina also. And I gave them a big break on tariffs, but now I'm taking that break off because it's very unfair to our manufacturers and very unfair to our farmers. Our steel companies will be very happy and our farmers will be very happy with what I have and the president of Brazil is saying this morning that he is concerned that he will try to speak to President Trump and reverse this action. He does not believe that it is fair to compare the Brazilian economy to the U.S. economy. In Argentina, they are very surprised as well. They have a transitional government there. In 10 days, a new government will take power. So both, both the outgoing officials and the incoming government are trying to figure out how they will talk to U.S. officials to figure out why it is that they are imposing, reimposing this tariffs of aluminum and steel, while the president continues to say that this will benefit the U.S. economy. 
economy and will make the steel and the farmers here in the U.S. very, very happy. Both industries, the president say, uh, while he is just driving the economy of Brazil and Argentina a little crazy today while both officials countries from both uh, officials from both countries are trying to figure out how to take the next steps back to you Tanit from Washington DC thank you very much now President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump are on their way to London to attend the 70th anniversary of the NATO alliance Pablo Monsalvo is in the British capital with details of the president's trip Pablo Thank you. President Donald Trump will arrive later this evening in a city that is still under shock after the terror attack that last Friday afternoon took the lives of two members of the public and the life of the attacker who was shot dead by the police. So, as usual, every time a foreign president comes to a major European city which is under the terrorist threat, there's a big concern about safety, about the security. The main reason that brings Trump to the capital of the United Kingdom is to participate in the 70th anniversary of the creation of the NATO, this military and political organization of all the countries that are involved in the North Atlantic Ocean. Trump has a very contradictory relationship towards this organization because in the past he was always criticizing it, saying it costs a lot of money to the US taxpayers and that not all the members, not all the countries that form part of the NATO contribute at the same level. But recently, surprisingly, in the last 48 hours, uh, he said that NATO keeps a very important role for the peace of the world, especially since it was created after the end of the Second World War. So, again, a contradiction coming from uh, President Trump towards an organization that it will be celebrating its 70th anniversary with an official ceremony tomorrow at the Buckingham Palace, uh, together with the Queen Elizabeth and many other dignitaries and presidents of the countries that are part of this uh, huge organization. As every time that Trump comes to the UK, uh, this is the third time since he took power in the US, he will be received by a demonstration. In this very case, there will be uh, the members of the National Health uh, Organization. Trump suggested that this organization should be privatized, but many, many of the British, I would say, a uh, larger uh, majority of the people in this country are very proud of it being public because it grants uh, health for free to everyone. That's why the um, current Prime Minister Boris Johnson asked publicly to Donald Trump not to get involved in any political issue. This country is going through a very delicate phase. Uh, it will have uh, general elections on December the 12th uh, to see if they can form a new government which will finally decide whether the country will make the Brexit, which will leave the European Union or will remain. That's why Trump was asked not to get involved in any uh, political domestic controversy in this country. Remember, we have to remember that he has a long history and tradition of disagreement with the mayor of this city, who is a member of the opposition. Let's see what happens. Now, back to you. Pablo Monsalvo from London, thank you. We will be on the lookout. So at least seven people are dead and 125 million in 30 states braced up for up to two feet of snow as people are trying to get back to business after the Thanksgiving break. Rafael Rodriguez has the latest on the chaos around the country. Winter weather alerts for millions of Americans getting back to business after the Thanksgiving break. 
The deadly storm that pummeled the West Coast and Midwest is now making its final stand on the East Coast. Several major cities will see the first snow accumulations of the season today, including New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. Drivers should use extreme caution if they need to be on the road, and they should avoid traveling if they can in areas of heavy snowfall. People in Albany, New York, are bracing for up to a foot of snow. In Niagara Falls, this car pinned beneath a truck, icy conditions likely to blame for that crash. This plane skidding off a taxiway as it arrived in Buffalo, and overnight snow pummeling the airport outside Hartford, Connecticut, one of several airports across the country reporting delays and cancellations. Drive to get here was absolutely crazy. I've never seen the airport quite this bad. In South Dakota, blizzard conditions turned deadly when a plane carrying 12 people crashed shortly after takeoff. Nine people were killed, including two prominent business executives from Idaho, two children, and the pilot. In Minnesota, snowdrifts burying these cars in Duluth. After more than a foot and a half of snow, plows struggled to keep up as drivers abandoned their cars on the highway. In the meantime, a new storm is already dumping snow in parts of Washington state. Rafael Rodriguez, U News. And the two executives who were killed in that plane crash have been now identified. Jim and Kirk Hansen were founders of a company in Idaho called Kiani, which sells nutritional supplements and skincare. A statement from the company is asking for privacy and thanks those who are supporting them right now. Meanwhile, the FAA is still investigating this crash. In Maryland, Mother Nature is to blame in a 58-car pileup. Take a look at this. These are just a few of the cars all smashed up now because heavy fog made it very tough to see the road. Maryland State Police say it all happened Sunday afternoon on I-68, right in the mid of the post-Thanksgiving day travel. There were about 29 separate crashes here, one after the other, and 10 people were sent to the hospital. Fortunately, officials are saying everyone is going to be just fine. And out west in Arizona, more severe weather officials north of Phoenix are still searching for a six-year-old girl that was swept away in a flooded creek. Her brother and cousin, both five years old, were found dead on Saturday. They were part of a group of nine family members who had gathered together for the Thanksgiving holiday and were in an oversized military-style truck when they got stuck in a rapidly rising creek after a storm. Four children and two adults got out and were rescued by helicopter, but three children stayed in the truck as it was swept away. Elsewhere around the country, 64 years ago on Sunday, Rosa Parks was arrested after she refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus for a white man. That moment would make her one of the major symbols of the civil rights movement. And now a statue of the icon has risen in downtown Montgomery. That statue was unveiled Sunday, 30 feet from the spot where she is believed to have boarded the bus. Parks died in 2005 at the age of 92. And now to a story that impacts so many here in the U.S. Today is Cyber Monday, where millions of shoppers will take advantage of countless deals over the Internet. But what is the emotional and physical toll on the people working in the warehouses across the U.S. who have to fulfill those orders? Well, a former journalist is speaking up about what she has say, you know, experienced as a seasonal employee at one of Amazon's fulfillment centers. Joining me now is Emily Gindelsberger. Thank you for joining us, Emily. Hey, 
Thanks for having me. So first of all, describe for us your day to day at this warehouse. You know, I mean, some of the duties that you had to perform there. Uh, so I was a picker at this warehouse. And so that meant pushing a cart around this huge, uh, this huge like shelving thing that used to, they looked like it went on to infinity. It was crazy looking. Um, also, just to note, I am a current journalist. I'm not sure why everybody is pegging me as a former journalist. I just worked there for this book that I was writing. Anyway, so my day to day was I would get there at uh, 6.30 a.m. and clock in. And then I would get myself a scanner and uh, then I would spend the next 11 hours or so uh, going around uh, scanning items that people had ordered off of Amazon and then putting in them in my tub and then taking that to a conveyor belt. And all told, I snuck in a, a step counter and I worked, I walked about uh, like between 13 and 16 miles a day uh, and it hurt quite a bit. And that's not just me. Ask anybody who has worked for Amazon as a picker and they will tell you the first two weeks are really brutal. Did you have a quota as to how many items you had to process within an hour, let's say? Yeah, the, it was called the rate and it differed from day to day. So it was it was sometimes 90, sometimes 100. It really, it, and I've seen places in other warehouses where it was like up to 200 or 250, which is wild. Uh, but for me, it was usually 90 to 100. Can you describe the warehouse for us? What's, what, you know, the conditions inside this place? We're looking at pictures though. It's a massive place, but you know, was it hot? Did you have to walk a lot? Did you have machines that probably were able to assist you? Well, I was there in the middle of winter because I was there during peak, which is the time they refer to right now as, you know, the, the holiday time. Um, so it was pretty temperate other than on the fourth floor it got pretty hot but i cannot imagine what it must have been like in the summer uh it must have been extremely hot even though it was uh climate controlled in in some ways um the i was in a fourth generation warehouse which means that it did not integrate robots yet um in uh fifth generation or whatever the current generation of warehouses is sorry um they integrate sort of Kiva robots and they kind of look like Roombas. And instead of the picker going to the shelf, the shelf sort of gets picked up by one of these robots and gets transported over to the picker. And then the picker still has to, you know, squat or climb up a little step ladder in order to get to the actual item. Emily, were you able to take bathroom breaks or, you know, uh, food breaks or to drink water or just to rest your back after being on your feet for several hours? So that is the thing. There have been a lot of headlines about things like people peeing in bottles, for example, uh, that have gotten a lot of headlines. It's not technically against the rules to go and go to the bathroom, right? It's, it's never outlawed anywhere. But the thing is, you will stop making rate if you don't work for 10 or 15 minutes, which if you're like really way out there in the mud, it can take 10 or 15 minutes to get back to, to get just to a bathroom, right? And we had half an hour lunch for which we, we clocked out. Um, and then we had 15 minute breaks, which were not really 15 minutes because they stopped, they started the last item you scanned, even though you were sort of out in the mod and it could take you, you know, five or 10 minutes to get to 
the cafeteria or a door or a bathroom or whatever. So it often was not a very relaxing break. Yeah, I can't imagine that. Emily, in a statement to ABC News, Amazon said your statements are not an accurate portrayal of working at their facilities. And the company actually encouraged people to take a tour of their facilities. So what's your response to that statement? Well, I would say that um, it wasn't just my experience at all. Um, I think if you talk to a lot of people who have worked for Amazon and similar warehouses, uh, people tend to hate Amazon just much more than any other place other than possibly fast food. And uh, also, I would say that if you are going on a guided tour of Amazon's warehouses, that sort of gives you about as much insight into what it's like to be an Amazon worker as it, you know, touring a zoo gives you insight in what to, into what it means to be an elephant. It really is not the same thing. And you wrote a book about your experience called On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. The book, ironically, is for sale in Amazon. So what do you want people to know, you know, from this book, to take away from this experience? Well, I would say... So for this book, I worked not just at Amazon, but also in a call center and a McDonald's. And what I really took away from it is that um, people with white collar jobs do not really understand how the degree to which work has gotten incredibly stressful for people on the bottom of the uh, workforce, honestly, about the bottom 50% of the workforce, because we're being driven to compete with robots as robots get better and better but cannot actually replace humans yet humans are sort of driven to mm, just squish all of the human parts of themselves like their need to pick up their kids their need to talk to anybody during 11 hours of a work shift the need to go to the bathroom um, those things are really incentivized to you know to for workers to crush those parts of themselves and i think it's kind of driving us all nuts I think so as well. Emily, thank you so much for your time and for talking to us. Good luck and we'll hey, see thanks you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Members of the Levarón family met today with President Andrés Manuel López Obrador this morning after Mexican authorities on Sunday arrested several people suspected of involvement in the killing of nine members of the Levarón family, the extended clan of American Mormons whose deaths last month drew international attention to rising violence in this country. Julian Levarón, a family spokesman and longtime anti-violence activist, said the three suspects detained Sunday were, quote, low-level thugs. And the Levarón massacre is just another example of a problem that has plagued Mexico for years cartel violence. Many Mexicans now joining that family, demanding answers and solutions to the ongoing crisis. As Grecia Lasta explains, over the weekend, they made their voices heard. While some members of the Levarón family marched in Mexico City against the violence that continues to shake this country, the Mexican prosecutor's office reported that the alleged perpetrators of the massacre of the six children and the three mothers that this family lost almost a month ago were arrested. And although for Julian and Adrian Levaron, it was good news, it is still not enough. We would like to go and hide in our house, but unfortunately we cannot erase the blood from our own hands if we don't go out and do something. 
About 50 Lebaron family members traveled to the Mexican capital to join the thousands demanding safety to the Mexican president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador. More than anything else, it is the pain of finding children and women thrown away as if our lives were worthless. And although between banners and shouts, many demanded even the resignation of the president, the Lebaron family only asked him to accept help. With the president of Mexico, together we can save Mexico, all together. But we have to accept that we need help because this crisis is bigger than us. There are more than 30,000 deaths in the last year and the violence doesn't stop. That's why many have enough. You tricked us that everything was going to change, that everything was going to be different. To forgive the criminals, that's the worst thing he's ever done. The protests happened at the same time in several cities around the country. In Guanajuato, the, the former vice president Fox participated. So that we no longer allow him to exercise power in a dictatorial way. In the capital, the march ended up at the monument to the revolution. It is time to raise from the floor all the pieces of pain that we have accumulated. Reported by Jessica Zermeño, this is Grecia Lastra for U News. In other headlines from around the world, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said today that the world must choose hope over surrender in the fight against climate change, warning that governments risked sleepwalking past a point of no return. This has two weeks of talks aimed to bolstering the 2015 Paris Agreement to curb global warming began in Madrid. Spain stepped in to host the climate talks after Chile was forced to withdraw as host amid raging street protests in the South American nation. In Costa Rica, hundreds of people and religious groups took to the streets of San Jose in the hopes of halting their government's plan to ease access to therapeutic abortions. The groups have responded to a call to defend a culture of life made by the Catholic Church, the official religion in this small and conservative Central American nation. The march is part of the 40 Days for Life international campaign, which began in the United States in 2004 in the hopes of limiting abortion. And it's a bittersweet resolution for a young man in Dominican Republic who was sexually abused by a Catholic priest in his former school. The priest was convicted and sentenced to jail. But as Paola Byron explains, that man is enjoying his freedom pending a Supreme Court's review of the case. A former student from this Catholic school said that he was seduced by a priest who was also principal at the institution when he was just 11 years old. All this happened in the environment where we were being indoctrined, during which he summoned me to the office for several days. And that's where he committed the sexual abuse. Victor Manin said that 39-year-old Miguel Florencin sexually abused him for six years. My client says that these accusations are not true. The young victim, now 22 years old, was an outstanding student, but he says he didn't graduate because of the abuse. That was the last drop. He finishes high school but doesn't graduate, so he starts making the accusations on social media. But I didn't know what was happening. And that's how everyone found out, including the public ministry that started an investigation into the priest who claims that Victor made it all up. Perhaps he has some feelings that maybe when others didn't pay attention, he began to denotate the whole situation. However, after two years, a court ruled in favor of Victor, the judges sentenced the priest to 10 years in prison and ordered him to pay a fine of $380,000. However, he is still free 
until the Supreme Court makes a final ruling in the case. I forgive him. I forgive him because I believe in God. What I will never forgive is that he is still out there and he needs to pay. In the Dominican Republic, reported by Indira Navarro, this is Paola Byron for U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Ten people on board of the Norwegian Joy cruise ship are being treated for medical issues. The ship docked Sunday in Los Angeles after a Mexican Riviera cruise. The cruise line said the guests experienced a stomach-related illness and that is now implementing tougher sanitation procedures. The incident comes a week after six passengers on board of the same ship were diagnosed with norovirus after a trip to the Panama Canal. And can a keto diet help beat the flu? According to a new study published in the journal Science Immunology, when mice fed a keto diet and were injected with the flu virus, their survival rates were much higher than those of mice fed a diet high in carbohydrates. The keto diet involves eating foods that are high on fat and low on carbs. Meals tend to consist of a variety of meat, fish, poultry, and non-starchy vegetables. The results suggest that if the flu can be tackled in this way, there is potential for changes in diet to help the body more effectively fight other viral infections. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then, 